Hello, everybody. This is Sarah Longwell. I am here with my good friend, Benjamin Wittes, and welcome to A French Village Podcast. Today we are discussing Season 1, Episodes 11 and 12, which is the finale. But the finale and the excitement contained in it holds nothing to the will-he-won't-he dynamic of the penultimate episode and the storyline surrounding Captain Carrot, which is what Ben Wittes has called himself on his uh, Zoom photo here. Yeah, so first of all, I I just want to say, before we get into the meat of these episodes, that I know I said that Gustave was my favorite character, um, but <clears throat> Captain Carrot in episode 11 is really making a run for it, and uh, Gustave better defend his position. Second thing I want to say is um, uh, uh, JVL's uh, having taken to issuing threats to my health and safety uh, on uh, on some of the uh, other podcasts that you guys run um, is starting to uh, get a little bit uh, alarming. And... <laughs> um, and um, you know, I don't know at what point uh, 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 veiled threats like it would be terrible if something happened to Ben Wittes um, uh, requires law enforcement involvement. <laughs> but uh, I, I just want to say, uh, Sarah, put a leash on that puppy. Yeah, you know, here's the, here's the thing. JBL is, is harmless, uh, but he's dark. And so he just goes to these dark places. Uh, and he seems to be taking this very personally. Yeah. Um, good news is, likes the show, listens to the show. Uh, <laughs> he kind of, it sounds like he kind of hates, hates listens to the show. I, I just want to say uh, to a sort of message to JVL um, that uh, I mean you no harm. Um, I, uh, I have never, uh, not even once in the six episodes, uh, of this show said the words, uh, and I'm not going to say them now, but the B word in front of the friend word, I haven't said it once. Um, uh, and you know, I just, I think a certain detente is, is appropriate here. Yeah, I don't know if you're going to get it, man. He's in the state. <laughs> He's in the state. Um, but in any event, uh, we have uh, we have a season finale to discuss, which I'm excited about. So lots of action. But I think that we probably have to um, start with Gustav and Captain Carrot. When you say Captain Carrot is now your favorite, I don't understand that uh, <laughs> because I don't think the bunny doesn't do anything in these episodes. Well. Captain Carrot, first of all, manages to avoid death, which is better than some of the other characters. But not not through his wiles or anything. Well, I, I look, I mean, some people get through Nazi occupation by luck. Some people get through by the negligence of the complicit. And some bunny rabbits get through uh, because of sentiment of communists. And that is what happened here, that... You know, the 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 whole 11th episode is organized around this caper that develops because uh, poor little Gustave thinks his dad is going to feed Captain Carrot to the communist brass. And uh, his father, who has shown 
exactly zero signs of being a softie about anything turns out to uh, incredulously say, you, you at the end of the episode, you thought I was going to kill your rabbit, which he caught in order to kill and feed to people. So I just want to say we have learned something through the through the admittedly inadvertent uh, uh, efforts of Captain Carrot. We have learned something substantial about uh, 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 Gustav's father, um, which is that he's a softie. You know, that is not my read on it at all. So I actually I actually had uh, so you're right in the way that this episode is organized around Captain Carrot with lots of things come to light because of this, right? You know, the kids uh in in an in an attempt to save uh Captain Carrot from from being eaten, they uh they get the the food coupons, the ration coupons from their hiding spot that they were playing with, which you may recall got Sarah fired because uh Janine Schwartz thought it was she who had taken them. And so the boys go and attempt to purchase a hedgehog pie uh, with it so that the the communists will have something else to eat and so they won't eat the rabbit. Uh, in doing so, they are caught um, trying – they have like you – because know, they don't understand the rations. They're giving them like clothing rations and things that are out of date. And by uh, the way, to the audience, if any of you has ever had hedgehog pie, we want to hear from you because – one of the great questions of episode 11 is what does a hedgehog pie taste like? Then the only hint they give you is what? It's better than a quail pie? Yeah. And Notice I mean, that it's superior to some other low-ranking fowl. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but here's, here's – let me just tell you my two, my two gripes with the Captain Carrot storyline. So one is I think that the show, which takes great pains to not put you – like you are you are given sort of not it's not uncritical but they're just they just present you with information and they do not emotionally manipulate you particularly often but this like at no point have we been so concerned as the show so setting up um you to feel fear for something like lots of people die get shot get put in bad situations but the show doesn't build around it and with the same like um anticipation and fear that it does around whether or not this rabbit's going to get eaten um which to me look i'm not going to get into the whole pet thing uh, i get some blowback when i do this where i'm just like, uh, don't worry a, captain carrot's not a dog i'm not but i'm just like not a huge <laughs> but like the thing i'm just like not a huge pet person in general but like the point is is that this 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 rabbit is getting far more sort of treatment of concern from the show number one that's that's my first thing let me just give you my second thing which is on marcel being a softie the way that when they walk in at the end and he, like, turns Gustav to see, like, there's your rabbit. You didn't really think I was going to eat your rabbit means that this whole time he knew that that kid thought he might eat the rabbit. And, like, the that he would wait until the bitter end when there's, like, a dead-skinned rabbit over on the counter and then the alive pet rabbit still in the cage to unveil this as opposed to, I think, you know, taking away a bunch of that anxiety early on uh, seems to me to be the better, the, the more, the, the, the kinder thing. This is the road to veganism. I mean, you know, 
if you imagine yourself as a six-year-old kid, you have a bunny rabbit that you love, you think your father is going to skin it and feed it to communists, and then you see a dead-skinned rabbit on the counter, you think it's your rabbit, and then your dad turns you around and shows you your live rabbit and says, ha, 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 I would never kill your rabbit. It's some other rabbit that I killed. And it's kind of a JVL kind of move. Um, and, you, you know, you would never eat meat again. And I think uh, that's what happened here. Um, I actually think there's a more benign and less sentimental explanation for the focus on Captain Carrot which is that it is a focus on Gustave and it is a uh, way of seeing this incredibly horrible world through the lens of a child's concerns. And, you know, the child has, is being asked to keep, you know, really important secrets by his father, um, secrets of life and death and imprisonment for people. Uh, it's the child's uh, indiscretion, such as it is, that causes uh, Suzanne, I think her name is, to be arrested in one of the prior episodes. There are Nazi soldiers roaming around town. He really doesn't understand any of it or what's going on. And he latches on to and his mother's just died and his father's been in prison for four months. And he had the uncomfortable discovery along the way that he really doesn't mind spending more time with his uncle who has a nice house and a more stable existence. And so he latches on to this big cuddly thing uh, that his father finds and he wants to protect it. And I think it's a... It's it's notionally a story about Captain Carrot, but it's really a story about Gustave and and how he is emotionally coping with the world around him. You know, that's a great explanation, and I think I think quite true. Uh, all the more reason that I think his dad's behaving like a monster in this episode. But um, but okay, uh, let me let's talk a little bit though about. Um, the action that gets kicked off around Sarah here um, because uh, not only did the kids getting arrested basically exonerate Sarah for the reason that she was fired, but she is still um, in jail and, uh, and is actually being questioned by uh, the worst human being to ever live Heinrich um, who, whenever he lights a cigarette, it is uh deeply scary you now watch the show just like as he smokes with kind of a a fear um because you never know when he's gonna burn somebody with it versus offer them a cigarette um but i think which, which the, he does in the the latter of which he does in his interrogation and he does with her sarah he offers her a cigarette which he had done to uh, um a prior suspect whom he burns with the cigarette and he just lets her take a a whiff of it and there's a lot of tension in that moment because you're afraid he's gonna uh gonna scorch her with it yeah but one thing we've seen with sarah is that she doesn't hold up great under questioning uh we saw this before with dick cavern uh no no with marchetti it was marchetti who was questioning her um she kind of folded she does this here again gives up lorraine 
who is the person who abandoned them. No one feels that bad about that, though. I was kind of like, when Sarah did it and she didn't give up anybody else's name, didn't implicate Marie, uh, just implicated the guy who abandoned them. Um, Do you think that was, uh, like, how did you judge her on giving up somebody in this? Did you think it was fair of her? So this is uh, advice for all listeners who, you know, may have occasion to be interrogated by a Nazi or uh, an authoritarian or totalitarian secret police guy at some point in your future. Uh, When you give up information, you don't know what you're giving up because you don't know what else he knows. So she gives up only Laurent. Um, which, you know, he abandoned uh, and got an, a seven-year-old or eight-year-old child killed. Uh, he abandons, a, you know, a family that he's supposed to be helping, and plus her, and they all get arrested, at least the lucky ones do. Um, what? So she gives up only him, which um, is, as you say, not the worst thing in the world. The trouble is that Heinrich Müller, the the SD guy, also knows that Laurent's wife, Marie, is somehow connected to De Cavern, whom he knows to be, or correctly believes to be, somehow involved in the uh, espionage ring, or later learns to be. So the result is that uh, while she gives up something that's individually not very important and actually morally kind of satisfying, it sets up a very dangerous situation in which there is now in the uh, in the SD man's mind a clear and correct, as it turns out, link between De Cavern, the uh, the prostitute Natasha. Uh, Laurent and Marie uh, are all involved and he has put this together in part on the basis of uh, Sarah's quite innocent disclosure of the name of the guy who abandoned them. And oh, by the way, he is quickly able to leverage that uh, with the Jewish family uh, and confirm and, and confirm it. Um, and so he now has some pretty substantial information, even though the last thing you would feel bad for in the world right now is belong. Yeah. Um, so, and, and speaking of, of Marie and De Caverne, uh, they are in this episode kind of, um, hatching a, a plot, uh, and, uh, you do finally get the prostitute's name, Natasha, if we've gotten it before, I hadn't caught it, but I definitely caught it in this episode. And so I could stop calling her the prostitute in my notes. Um, but what they're trying to do is like, is it, they set up this mission where she's gotta, gotta get Schwartz's passport or the pass that he gets, not a passport, but a pass that he has that allows him to move between, sides uh because he's you know friends with von ritter helmut von ritter the the germans and he's working with them and they they she needs to copy his signature so that i guess they can forge uh a pass and uh and she does this uh, protests a little bit but she does it 
um, and, you know, has sex with shorts and they're still carrying on their affairs. So that's normal. But she kind of leaves him upstairs, goes downstairs and, and tries to mimic his signature and then takes it to Natasha, meets her in church. Um, and then that allows Natasha to sort of go on this mission where she needs to find um, information. Uh, she's got to, like, break into a German office. Uh, so the Marie, Marie has to, like, decide here whether because she basically goes from having a real love affair with Schwartz to one that is used to get information from him. How do you judge her actions on this? Well, you know, you could say all's fair in love and war, and this is both, right? I mean, so she had a, uh, had a, she had a, opportunity to involve him in the ring and tell him what was going on and ask for his help, uh, that is bad intelligence practice, right? I mean, in intelligence practice, you want to give as little information to as few people as humanly possible. And so, and partly, by the way, for their own protection. I mean, you know, the if he knows stuff, uh, he is in more danger than if he doesn't know stuff. So I actually don't fault her for thinking about it. You know, she's not a professional intelligence operative, but she's thinking about it like one. And she's saying, you know, if he knows something, we know he's cavorting with von Ritter. We know he has a real relationship with, um, with, the occupation uh if he knows stuff he could reveal stuff but either on purpose or by accident it could also be tortured out of him if he doesn't know stuff he can't so if i slip stuff out of his pocket and copy it well that's better for everybody it's better for the operational security of the of the operation it's also better for him uh, and I think she it's not better for exactly one thing, which is trust between the two of them. And that breaks down as a result. And that's, you know, that is, by the way, in espionage, this is a problem among operational people to this day. One of the biggest, if you look at, you know, the operations directorate at the CIA, uh, they have high divorce rates, high uh, rates of, you know, people sort of what, as one of them described it to me, you know, you get a bunch of intelligence officers, eventually they start, uh, you know, practicing tradecraft in, in their personal lives. And that is exactly what you see here. It, and it is tr a trust eroding way to live. And, you know, Marie is doing an extremely fine job at what Dick Averon asked her to do, but it's not a good way to build trust with your lover. Right, which is already built on a lie and an affair, so I guess I, I don't... See, like, I look at Marie, and I've said Marie's my favorite character. Um, she is, and it is in these moments that I like her the absolute most. Um, you know, Schwartz hits her, but... And, and she kind of, you know... She is obviously concerned that she has broken trust. She knows what she's doing. 
But, like, the steely resolve that she has to participate in what is, to her, a pretty opaque way of helping. She doesn't even really know how the information she's gathering is being used, how it really helps. She just knows she wants to help. She wants to do something. She wants to be part of pushing back. And when you contrast that with Janine's day drinking, uh, where her son comes home for lunch, which she's told him to do, and she's drunk at her desk, um, and, you know, you've got... You've got Hortense, who is just sort of, you know, uh, not teasing is not as too too small a word, but um, is baiting and sort of torturing uh, her husband, Dr. Larche, with uh, with letters from Marchetti, who misses her and, you know, is telling, confessing his love to her. Like, they're just acting like children and spoiled and, like, they don't know what's going on. And Marie is putting literally... Every 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 relationship that she has, she is putting this um, attempt to help the the bigger sort of effort above, and um, it is one of the reasons I admire her and think that she's a really well crafted character because they they do make it clear that she's willing to pay sort of the emotional price across, across the board with her husband and with her lover uh, in service to doing something. Yeah, I look, she is one of the most admirable characters in the show. I I do think by the way over these two episodes De Caverne keeps growing on you as a as as a character. He you know, he starts out as a kind of greasy policeman type, but he is really along with her taking control of the situation protecting his people on a pretty consistent basis. He takes extreme risks to himself for Natasha, uh, which doesn't end up protecting Natasha, but that's through no fault of his. And he uh, also makes pretty consistently good judgments about, you know, what needs to be done at different times. But look, Marie is... You find out in one of these episodes that she's barely been to school. She's, you know, she's went to school through until she was 14. Uh, she's uneducated. She's, um, she's, you know, presumably not well versed in the political disputes that, you know, we have talked about that are separating different camps in France from one another. Uh, and yet, all of her instincts are on the, you know, her basic moral instincts, uh, at least politically, are all on the side that we would say is unambiguously and clearly right. She doesn't, uh, and her sense of horror uh, at her husband's behavior is our own sense of horror. She does stand for us in some very meaningful way in a way that is not true of, you know, Marcel can only stand for you if you're sympathetic to the party in that period. Uh, you know, the, the cops, uh, except for De Caverne, you know, the, even Larche is a, you know, at the end of the day, he's a kind of, admirable functionary of Vichy, but he is a functionary of Vichy. Um, and, you know, she is somebody who, 
is, you know, thinking in real time in a fashion that's roughly consistent with the way history regards morality in that period. And that's a pretty neat thing to see portrayed in a kind of unsentimental, unglorifying sort of way. Yes. Uh, it's a great, great explanation. Okay, so it, right at the end of episode 11, the penultimate episode, we, we the bunny is saved, but Schwartz is in trouble because Lorraine has showed up, has shown up um, with a shotgun uh, just as Schwartz and Marie are having the fight where he has realized, because he's been holed in by Heinrich, uh, Heinrich notices a... A, a little um, blood stain on the pass, and Heinrich is putting together the fact that they have used Schwartz's pass, or somebody has used Schwartz's pass, um, to go gather this intelligence. And he asks Schwartz about the blood stain, um, and Schwartz makes up a lie, but he clearly knows that it was when she cut her finger. He saw her cut her finger when they were meeting um, the day that that she figured, you know, she she copied his handwriting. Um, and so they are in the process of, of breaking up, having a fight, uh, him feeling betrayed, her being sorry, but obviously, you know, still having felt that it was worth doing. Um, and Lorraine shows up just then and, uh, basically forces Schwartz to his knees, puts the gun to his, his head and they give you the boom, boom music. Uh, and so just, just when our relief for Captain Carrot, now we're worried about Schwartz and Marie who, you know, being held at gunpoint. Um, and, uh, the, so we get into the finale and, uh, and, and Lorraine decides to, um, take Schwartz into the, uh, barn where they kind of do a throwback to the day that they all three butchered the pig together. Um, and he hoists, uh, he hoists, um, Schwartz up on the, I don't even know what they're called, but... (laughs) Gets him by his hind hind legs and 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 hoists him up like a pig, in order to you know cut his throat and drain his blood. That's um, right. Yeah. So this is where this lurking psycho quality of Laurent, who which we've all kind of expected at some level, he's come back to the from the war a pretty damaged person, and that's clear from the time he gets out of the car and hugs Marie, he's, there's something off about him. If he was a normal human being before the war, there's something he's not quite right now. And that has been lurking in a sort of subcutaneous fashion uh, since he reappears in the story. But it doesn't come out, right? There's something, yeah, he's trading on the black market. He's not, you know, Marie is keeping her distance from him. But you don't really see it as, okay, the full-blown, this is a really bad guy. He abandons the, the family, of course, but he doesn't he doesn't kill the family himself, right? But here he is getting ready to torture Schwartz to death um, and... He does the torturing part. He also, you know, strikes his wife with the butt of a gun, which is, you know, that is uh, no small, uh, The you know, the butt of a shotgun is a significant piece of wood. And, you know, she is not seriously injured, but she certainly could have been. 
Um, but she's kind of out. She's kind of out, out, out cold at the end of the episode, and then she seems he's like she's come to, and he's got Schwartz in the bar, and he's still holding her at gunpoint. Yeah, there's some. I mean, there's some serious domestic violence going on there, yeah. which is not, you know, not focused on. It's kind of a an afterthought because he's actually getting ready to kill somebody who's not, you know, who's not Marie, but he's. He's brutally violent in in these scenes, and he's also, you know, he's you can't talk to him. Marie tries to talk to him, and Schwartz tries to talk to him, and he's freaking crazy. And um, so I I do think he shows, you know, you get it gets revealed who he is, and of course by the end of the twelfth episode. Marie is, you know, shoots him herself. Um, and, you know, that's a, so I think the sort of trajectory of that story kind of comes to an end that this is at the end of the day, a rabid dog and he has to, you know, has to be put down. And of course he, you know, kills Natasha as well. And so I, I, I do think the sort of who, the who is Laurent story is brought to a, sort of not wholly unexpected end, but a very sort of dramatic and upsetting end uh, at the end of this season. Yeah. And of course, uh, so there's the, the interesting thing about the way that Laurent dies and his, his sort of his, his vibrating with uh, anger and insanity, the way that it all plays out is like, they, they have this discussion, right? Like Natasha and Marie and Dick Caverne are all thinking about, um, how they're gonna get out of here and like Dick Averne's like you gotta kill the guy <laughs> like we gotta we gotta get rid of this guy and Natasha is like I can't be part of this I can't do it you know this is another person we haven't discussed her as much but who is also to no um to no benefit to herself has just decided she's going to help um has has sort of put herself in this danger in this world and you know you at no point see an incentive for either marie or natasha or or dick Averne for that matter right why are the people who are doing right doing right uh what is it that's driving them and these three people who all are in the the bedroom together discussing this sort of moral choice about whether you kill whether you leave no witnesses uh or whether you know you don't sort of succumb to to murdering somebody which is natasha's position um, it's just sort of interesting to me as you think about them, like, why are they the good guys? Why are they making these decisions? Why are they putting themselves in this mortal danger for what? And it is just the, it is the, that sort of, that sense of, um, I believe in a right. I believe in something right. I believe that what's happening here is unjust and wrong, and I want to be part of fighting it. Um, and, and I find that amazing. Uh, I also will say this is another thing I love about Marie. There's this part where, you know, Dick Verne is like, clearly he's going to shoot Lorraine. He wants to shoot Lorraine. Um, we know Natasha doesn't want it to happen. Uh, but when Lorraine comes in, he shoots Natasha, which changed the vote, changes the voting structure. Um, and and now you've just got Marie and Dick Verne and she, Marie takes the gun and does it herself. Um, and, you know, it seems... It could be read like, well, Marie in particular wants revenge in some way on Laurent, but that's not 
That's not what it is, right? What it is is she's willing to have his blood on her hands. She's willing to take the responsibility and the emotional freight uh, for his life and believes that it is, again, in service to the greater cause. Like, she just, she is, she's being practical about what Dave Caverne, the case he's making, which is you cannot leave this guy behind as a witness. Yeah, and I also think she is, so there are so many, this is a short scene that is packed with so much interesting stuff. She is also, until the moment where he kills Natasha, she is looking for a solution. And at the at that moment, she realizes, and and of course, the solutions they're discussing are uh, two or basically three. One is: is there a way for Natasha to go into hiding uh, in France, in in Nice, in particular, with her sister? Uh, could they make it to the Italian zone? Now, this was an interesting historical point. Uh, right at the end of the the Battle of France, um, you know the, the Germans blitz over France in a very sort of three week period. Right at the end of this, uh, Mussolini declares war on France as well and sends troops north into you know f- collapsing France. And the result of this is that there is a on the in southern France a thin area that Mussolini got as an occupation, an Italian occupation zone in France. Uh, And so the reference here is, you know, could you get down out of the German zone or out of out of Vichy control and into the Italian zone where things are a little bit more relaxed? Um, And then the third option they're talking about is could they get to Switzerland? So Switzerland is, according to them, 80 kilometers away the border is relatively porous. And of course, Switzerland was then, as always, neutral and was a, it was not a safe haven for that many people because the Swiss were pretty good at uh, not letting a whole lot of people in. But a bunch of people did spend the war years in Switzerland. And of course, a lot of money spent the war years in Switzerland as well. And so there, she's looking for options here. You know, where can Laurent go? Where can she go where they're not going to be caught? Because Laurent will be tortured and will give them up if he's tortured, um, if caught. But then, you know, he does not play ball with this and he tries to kill them and inadvertently kills uh, kills Natasha instead. Um And at that point, she's like, all right, you know, and this sort of tradecraft side of her takes over and she's like, I'm stop looking for a solution for you. You know, Decaverne is right. And, you know, she I think your point that she's looking to, you know, she's willing to have the dirty hands herself, not just let Decaverne do it, but it's a kind of right. I'm all in at this point. And uh, she does it herself. Yeah, um, it's a it's a great scene. And then they run through. We know from a previous episode, there's a tunnel in this house. Uh, Schwartz has told her. Um, and so they presumably escape through the tunnel. But it's funny with all that action, the gunshots and the the torture and, and all the dynamics going on there. To me, that is not the most interesting 
um, storyline in this episode. The most interesting storyline to me is the where the it kicks off um, with Doctor Larche uh, coming to his office, and there's a a gaggle of women, angry women there who are you know, saying, hey, Mayor, we don't have any food. Like, there's no butter, there's no milk, um, our children are starving. Um, and and Larche does this thing uh, that I think is is essential to who he is in this show, where he says, they, they ask him, have you gone without meat? Have you gone without bread? And he says, well, no, I make more than you. I'm a doctor. I made more than you before the war. And that's just the way class works is basically his answer to their faces, right? Because this is the way that Larche is, is like, well, there are self-evident truths. And um, I'm not necessarily thinking super hard about the morality of them. Um, and and he just says that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, over the the episode, one of the women, who is the, the one of the more aggressive women in the in the group, comes to Dr. Larche with her son, who is starving to death. He's suffering from malnutrition. And Dr. Larche is forced to confront it as the doctor, the humanitarian, not sort of the 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 mayor, um, who now, you know, basically says to his the the help in his house, go get this kid some bread, some meat. Um, and, and he kind of says to the mom, like, well, he, he needs food. He's, so, you know, whatever. And she's like, yeah, <laughs> there's no food. Like, this is what's going on Duh. here. And so when he when he sees it as a doctor, he does, of course, the the decent humanitarian thing in the moment, which is he finds food for the kid and then he says, bring him back. Um, and ultimately, when she does bring him back to check on his digestion, um, you know, Larche gives him three months of ration coupons and says, do not tell anybody that I did this because he can't do it for everybody. Although his wife sees it somehow. And or, yeah. And that is sort of a foreshadowing of future tensions between them. That's right. Um, but, but, but it is, it is interesting how his, to me, the most interesting part of this episode is his evolution over the course of it. Right. And then, so he goes to the deputy prefect to say, here's my plan. Here's my plan for how we're going to get food to all of these people who are out there starving. And the deputy prefect looks at the plan and says, wait, you're going to tax the wealthy to feed the poor? And he says, yes, exactly. And uh, the deputy prefect says, have you been hanging out with your brother a lot? Like, he immediately views this idea as as, as communist-inspired. Go ahead. Yeah, so I... I think there's a again there's a lot going on in this scene, right? It's it's or in this sequence of scenes, it's Larcher, Larcher the the humanitarian uh and the communitarian versus the sort of class uh class privileged person, but there's also an element here of vindictiveness with respect to his wife. So, you know, he knows that she's had an affair with with Marchetti. He's basically arranged for Marchetti to be transferred. She is very bitter about it and and reads him this letter and tells him, I'm in love with him the way I've never been in love with you. She is super unrepentant and mean about it. And how does he respond? He responds by becoming sympathetic 
with the attack on her privilege, right? She's she is quite well fed and getting whatever she needs by sending servants to on the black to buy things on the black market. And what does he do? He proposes, first of all, gives away her ration coupons to you know basically a random person with a malnutritious son, malnutrit, mal. He's suffering from malnutrition. Suffering from a malnourished son. Yeah. Right. Um, And then he also proposes a policy of systematically depriving people like her of the ability to take a disproportionate share of the resources. And so I think there's there's an interesting personal dimension of the politics. And so when he gets asked, have you been hanging out with your brother his response emotionally, he doesn't say this, of course, is no, I've been hanging out with my wife. Um, and, <laughs> you know, and I'm... And I'm, with you, jerk. Right. Yeah. I've, I've, I've been seeing these fat and happy people who seem to think it's the natural order of things that they should be well fed while other people are starving. And I just defended that the other day in the streets and then thought about it and had to examine a kid who was starving and I was repulsed by it. Um, and, And so I think he's becoming, he's always had this air of sort of extreme stoicism that annoys his wife, Um, But he is increasingly prepared to, you know, engage in self-deprivation, particularly if he can drag her with him. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's funny. Uh, I do think um, it does seem unlikely to me that it has not quite occurred to him before that there are wealth disparities in ways that could be... um, I don't know that that could could ping his conscience, prick his conscience. Um, but but still, forgetting that uh, the 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 way in which he is thinking about this, and I think there is for him, there's an element, right? It's because they're at war. Um, the natural order previously was, of course, there are wealth disparities. Wealth disparities exist. Uh, the the question is, is that what you got during the war is that now there were huge swaths of people who had nothing, like just weren't eating and there was just not food getting in. And uh, and and he was trying to figure out actively how to solve that. And the bureaucracy that was responding to it didn't want to solve it. Like this is to me a real low point for the deputy prefect. Um I, it is and there's inter- competition in that sphere. There, there is, there is. But I have, uh, you know, having seen the whole thing, um, and no spoilers, but I have sort, sort of complicated, or I, I finished the show with some complicated feelings about the deputy prefect. Um, but I, seeing his response here, which I'd completely forgotten about, I was like, oh yeah, man, you're the worst. Um, so anyway, go ahead. Right. So f- again, France is a, since... You know, since the Napoleonic era is a highly unitary state, right? This is not a federal system, right? And the mayor reports to the deputy prefect, reports to the prefect, reports to Vichy, right? There is this very, you know, these are not, there's nothing in France like the, uh, you know, the, the, 
system where governors in the United States have independent sources of power. And this is a, you know, reflection of the fact that if you're a local mayor and you want to get anything done regarding feeding your people, you got to go through this, you know, this bureaucratic chain of command that is no joke and organized in this point of time with interests other than the humanitarian ones that may be pressing to you on the ground. Um, and I, I think it's it's quite accurate uh, that, you know, a food distribution system like this would not be something that a local mayor would necessarily be able to organize. And I also think that the sort of communitarian nature of this of his proposal would be looked at askance by by that hierarchy at that time and so you know i think it's a it's a very interesting scene and it's a um and it's one that again does not i i, I don't think what larche is thinking about in this point in time is left politics i think what larche is thinking about is sort of technocratic how do you how do you deliver services in a, in the most efficient fashion to the most people in the face of the most urgent need but he he comes up with something that is you know in the in the socialisty spectrum yeah uh yeah, it's it's it, the other thing that I would just say that I think this is reflecting is an increased uh, scarcity, right? So we have seen through the show as the time was on, right? There was this that the the like I can't remember if it was Easter, but they held some kind of supper soup, you know, they a food thing for for people who were poor, where they could come and they they were kind of feeding uh, feeding people. But now it looks like lots of people who had been previously able to feed themselves. Um, no longer can. There's no longer access to food and things are getting worse. And you see uh, that in episode 11 too, where, you know, Marcel faces to go back to the Captain Carrot episode, you know, they're living off the land at this point. He's, he's, when he catches a rabbit, it is not for purposes of his son having a pet. Uh, and when he has three communist mucky mucks coming over for dinner, He's got a what the heck do I feed them problem, and so you you do see food scarcity being a bigger and bigger issue. Yeah. Hey, just since you brought it back up, I, I one thing I wanted to ask you about the episode eleven. So the communists come over for dinner and they have this weird conversation where you know, one of them keeps saying like uh, dialectics, uh, and you know Marcel, who'd been uh, chastised by kind of the the big boss locally. Um, who's now trying to suck up to whoever this next? They're, the communists have their own bureaucracy that looks not that much different from the, the regular town's bureaucracy for all of their anti-establishmentarianists. Uh, and but but what what was that conversation about? What was okay. the point of it? What's happening so, there? So this is a conversation about socialist communist tensions, which we've discussed earlier. Um, the communist party and the socialist party. Uh, you know, are essentially one thing until the Russian Revolution, 
with different factions and World War One. They diverge radically from one another in World War One uh, during the World War One period and with the Soviet Revolution. The socialists become a parliamentary party in France, which they are to this day. You know, they occasionally even elect presidents of France. Um, uh, the communists are a revolutionary party controlled by Moscow and regard the socialists as a, uh, you know, a kind of gloss for the ruling regime. Uh, they are sometimes in coalition with one another, um, particularly as we discussed in a previous episode during the so-called uh, 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 during the the period shortly before the war where the the left kind of united to put a government in place in France this was the government of Leon Blum um but they are they they hate each other and so when um Marcel uh teams up with the socialist Suzanne to distribute the uh, November 11th flyers, he is doing so directly opposite party orders, which say, you know, you can't work with that traitor socialist. But then, of course, and, and as we talked about in a previous episode, this is the period of time in which the Soviet Union is, you know, essentially allied with the Nazis, right? Um, they've divided up Poland, there's the Hitler-Stalin pact, and so the, not, the, the Communist Party has gone from being ferociously anti-Nazi and anti, you know, uh, uh, to being, having this, we're sitting this war out kind of attitude. They're not, uh, you know, the Soviets are not uh, anti-German. And so the Communist Party is kind of not engaged early in resistance. This changes decisively in the summer of 41 when this when Hitler stabs Stalin in the back and invades the Soviet Union, at that point the communists become a very important part of the resistance. But in this period of time, they have this ambivalent relationship and they don't want to cooperate with the socialists. So you're seeing the beginning of that change here where, you know, Marcel could be in real trouble for violating orders and doing something with the socialists. But now there's a little bit of a different message from Moscow, which is, hey, maybe a little bit of resistance wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. You know, a kind of united front approach, maybe cooperate with the socialists a little bit. That message is starting to get through. And so the Communist Party, which of course can never acknowledge error about anything by the nature of what it believes, um, basically the instructions in this meeting are um, you erred by doing the right thing too early. And so his immediate boss, you know, is like, hey, you you defied party orders, right? You you worked with a traitor socialist. But his boss's boss, who's a guest at the dinner, is like, no, he anticipated the party's position a few weeks before the party got it right. That's cool. Now, <laughs> um, it's a it's very funny. It's also deadly because 
in the Stalin era, you know, either one of those can get you killed. Um, now, less so in France, of course, than in the Soviet Union. But defying the party, being right too early can get you killed or can get metal pinned on you. Um, and, you know, being a few days ahead of Stalin, you don't really want to do that. But also, you know, carrying the line too hard, once the line shifts, you can be associated with the prior position and get killed for that. So it's a real... Um, but in this case, of course, the party doesn't have the power of life and death over you because they're not in charge. So you see it play out not as you and your family get sent to a labor camp or get a bullet in your neck, but you and uh, you. There's a debate over whether to praise you or 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 condemn you, uh, and it's it's all played out in comedy. But I think. You know, people who sort of know the history of Stalinism and this period of the party's existence, it has this air of menace to it because these are exactly the sort of things that are getting people killed all through the 30s and later in the 40s, less so during the war um, in in the Soviet Union. Yep. Um, well, here, I just have one more plot point I want to wrap up. And yeah, then and I, I have just, an issue I, wanna... I want to raise with you, too. Oh, okay. Well, I'm just going to, as like a last plot point. So when, Marie, you know, Schwartz, uh, Dick Avern shows up, shoots Lorraine in the hand, uh, gets Schwartz down. Schwartz goes home to Janine and does this whole like, I'm back for good. I broke things off with Marie. Obviously isn't telling her the real story about Marie betraying him. Um, and Janine acts all grateful about it. And I really, I find these things extremely annoying because I just really think like, why are you take kick this guy out? Like, what are you doing? Um, but not that I've got any love for Janine. Uh, but still, I just found his whole, uh, aren't you so glad that I've been cheating on you this whole time and now I've come <laughs> back? Like, okay. Well, the show does, let's be frank, take a kind of very French attitude toward marital fidelity, which is, uh, it's it's very optional in all circumstances. <laughs> um, okay, but what's your what? But so I'm very. Do you ha, are you do you have a bone to pick with me? You have a thing I think no, I'm no, wrong no, about. No. Oh, okay, I, I, except I mean I do think you know there has been there have been a couple of episodes where Schwartz has sort of risen in our in our estimation. He's been sort of admirable over the last few episodes, and here I think is where we see the limits of that. He's um, he's, you know, he begs for his life from Laurent. He does not seem capable of understanding that Marie is doing something for a larger reason that is actually admirable. Uh, and he, at the end, comes crawling back to his wife, grateful to be alive and to have a... Uh, precisely the kind of middle class lifestyle, bourgeois lifestyle that Larcher is at the same time and with an equally uh, repulsive spouse, uh, you know, actually starting to resist a little bit and 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 think about the justice of and Schwartz is kind of, you know, happy to be back and away from these, you know, these people who 
can put you in danger by by thinking about doing the right thing. And I think it's it's a it's a kind of a lowish moment for him uh, after several episodes where he's, you know, kind of begun to grow on you a little bit. It's almost like he's much better when he's with Marie than with Janine. Uh, Not that it's say. their responsibility, because he should be good or, you know, on his own merits, but... Uh, I mean, just, I think he's... Seated. Honestly, he's at his best when he's thinking about Sarah. Yeah. You know, he's... Uh, this is a guy who is capable of real personal loyalty to people underneath him uh, in the totem pole, who's who's willing to take risks and he does at the end of the 12th episode get Sarah free we we say goodbye to cap uh to uh to von Ritter who has been transferred lost his battle with the SD which by the way is a harbinger of bad things to come because the career German military is are the sane ones here they're the the rational actors and they're the people you can kind of do business with, whereas the SD people are the Nazi psychos. And so he's been transferred away. He comes to Schwartz's to say goodbye. And the last thing he does in office is release the Jewish former maid of of uh, Sarah Myers, which was something that the good side of Schwartz wants to see done and pushes for. And I think there's a, there's a really interesting portrait of the, the more and less attractive sides and more and less honorable sides of, of, of Schwartz in, in, in these last couple episodes. Yeah. So I have an issue I want to raise with you before we close, which, which is related to a point that you made earlier. You said that, you watch this and there are just these people who do and don't decide to do the right thing and it's never quite explained and it's not necessarily the people you would predict. And uh, you're talking about the show here, but of course, I don't believe you're thinking about the show when you say that. Um, I think there's a lot of contemporary thinking when you say that. And I just want to hear you reflect on that since the reason that we're doing this show has as much to do with contemporary matters as it does to with, you know, the plight of the fictional village of Villeneuve in 1941. Uh, what does that say to you? Right. So when I talk about the show, I've always said sort of it's a meditation on complicity. Um, but it is also just a question about people. So why do people do the things that they do? What drives and, – and you're right. This is uh, one of the things I found – one of the reasons I found it deeply interesting is that I've just, as we all have, have gone through like a four-year period where we operate in a world of political actors, pundits, uh, writers – think tankers uh, and actual politicians and all manner of activists, right? They're all kind of here in D.C. and people have their their teams and their ideological attachments. Um, but when presented with something that uh, I would view as sort of objectively, where you could make an objective uh, choice about what is right and what is wrong, 
a whole bunch of people whose opinions that I trusted, who I had been reading or or who had I had respected or who I had worked with, uh, chose wrong. Like in a way that I thought was, um, you know, and, and look, in, in the world that I move in of kind of never Trumpers, right, we all talk about this like invasion of the body snatchers. Like it was like watching people go crazy. The great uh, Ionesco play Rhinoceros is about this, you know. People you thought were normal suddenly turn into rhinoceroses. I'm not familiar with that work, but you, this you is... should you should read it. It is it is literally a play that the uh, absurdist playwright Eugene Ionesco wrote about uh, fascist propaganda. That you had all these normal people who would would say, you know, you thought believed the things that you say, and all of a sudden they have a rhinoceros head. <laughs> um, yeah, well, in this case, I mean, it's the people who had written books about morality, you know, it just just Bill Bennett uh, and, you know, talk about virtue and, you know, who had led the charge on character counting. And um, in the Trump era, you watched a lot of people and 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 you basically you 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 stood with then there's a bunch of other people, right? There's this other group of people who had plenty to lose Um and and were sort of cast out of their old um, professional circles. You know, they lost the magazines that they ran. You know, what, whatever it was, they left their jobs. Um, they were accused of all kinds of things. But they did it. Why did they do it? And and like if you, I, I've having been immersed in it, I've I've asked lots and lots of people on both sides of this. Why did you go along with it? Why, what's your, you know, I've listened to people rationalize uh, going along with the Trump stuff. And I've, I think I deeply understand uh, the people who decided not to go, go along with it. And it really comes down to like a character question. Like it's just, a, it just is. It's a question of um, people who, in order to get to the outcome that they wanted for themselves personally, they contorted uh, and rationalized. And, you know, when it came to ethics, it became all situational and it became all about, well, this other side is worse. Um, people who had preached objective truth for as long as I've known them lost any sense of objectivity and it became all subjective and about what somebody else could potentially do. And that's why I have to do this thing that I'm doing. And then there was this much smaller group of people who sort of regardless of the consequences, just could not help themselves. They couldn't help th that and that is and that made them very annoying to the people who were figuring out how to accommodate things where the there was a group of people who just said, this is wrong and I'm going to keep saying it's wrong. I'm just going to keep saying it's wrong no matter what. But here's, I think, one additional element that I think the show gets exactly right and that just and that gels really precisely with the point you're making about contemporary times which is it's totally unpredictable who is going to be in that latter group and who is not that you know if you look at this group of characters and you said uh at the beginning of the show would it be the farm girl the grizzled old police chief and the prostitute who are uh, being pursued by the SD guy at the end and are holed up in the farmhouse 
and are really the moral voice of the show at the end of season one, you would not have predicted that. Uh, and if you had said, would, uh, would, would, you know, would it be the Sarah Longwells and the Bill Crystals and the Tim Millers who are the sort of moral voice of the Republican Party? Uh, and I can say that because you can't. Um, uh, I don't know that I would have predicted that either. And more importantly, I would not have, pre I certainly would not have predicted that people that I've co-written with and believed had values similar to mine would be the, uh, you know, the deputy prefects um, and the, uh, and, and also, let's be honest, the Luciennes, the sort of, you know, letting the world act on you and dating the German soldier for reasons I can kind of understand because, like, life is hard. But at the end of the day, that's really, really not best practices. And our ability to predict who's going to be which is basically nil. Yep. Uh, I think that's right. I think that's right. You know, speaking of Lucienne, uh, I don't, she doesn't really appear in the last, uh... Yeah, we have a break from Lucienne. Yeah, which I gotta tell you, it's one of the things about the show, um, just as we kind of wrap up here uh, after a full season that, that's, it's always sort of just struck me as funny as like the show just kind of disappears people, uh, for periods of time, not just the main characters, but really the, so like... At some point, somebody mentions, I can't remember when it happens, but some, somebody mentions the soldier that, uh, the, the, the guy who had, who had found that soldier in the tree and had dragged Marie and Dr. Larche out to help him. And like, who had probably stolen the ham and who played a bunch, like a very central role and in he's creating just gone. a, he's just gone. Like nobody ever hears from him again. I'm, I'm not going to, I mean, maybe he comes back later. We don't know, but I'm just saying at least for this season, uh, it's this random guy who we were expected to think a lot about for several episodes is just gone. I will say it strikes me as bananas that, uh, Laurent and Marie, like he comes back from the war. He's not dead. Uh, they never he never sees his kids. Like the kids are still living with the in-laws and there's like no attempt. I mean, maybe they've seen them, but as best I can tell, uh mom shot dad in the head before the kids ever got to see him come home from the war. Um, you know, I don't know where Tequiero went. Uh, you know, oh, yeah, he's uh, been missing the past couple episodes. Like Hortense has all kinds of time on her hands. They don't have a maid right now. So like I this is the I, I would look, I I'm not I can't I can't be here to police every plot point, but I do I do find the show comical sometimes in like ways that it just takes threads that were very important and like lets them drop. Uh well, speaking of which, this should not go unobserved before we close today, that this is the end of season one of the French Village podcast. Yeah. Um, Seven seasons to go. Because we are plowing into season two, uh, and I think we should call it season two on the podcast uh, because it would be cool to have seasons of the French Village podcast. Sure. And you know what? We're in charge. So, yeah, so uh, great. Next week. Join us for season two of the French Village Podcast. A French Village Podcast. Le podcast pas. to you. Um, <laughs> All right. See you guys. Have a great weekend. Eat, eat. Take us out. Nous, nous aimions
bien tendrement Comme s'aiment tous les amants Et puis un jour